This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Who had week one for the first Manchester United inquest of the season? Brighton, excellent in victory. But there are so many questions for Eric Ten Hag, camera pans to Sir Alex Ferguson in the stands. Is the title race over? Who had week one for when Liverpool would drop points? Written off Fulham might actually be quite good. Perhaps Erling Braut Haaland isn't the fraud we all thought he was last week. By how many points will both Spurs and Arsenal win the title? There's Jesse Marsh saying things you should never say these days. Question marks over Steven Gerrard. Scott Parker in full army wear. Fabian Scher whacking it in. We've got new camera angles, badges instead of acronyms. Multi-ball, your question. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, John Bruin. Hello. Hello, Max. Uh, nice to see you. Uh, Barry Glendenning. Mark says, is Barry really going to forego his Sunday afternoon in the pub? Or will he be recording the pod whilst maybe a bit tired and emotional? Did you stay out of the pub? I did forego my afternoon pints in the pub. Sunday afternoon pints, massive sacrifice. But all being well, I shall... Uh... Adjourn to the saloon in an, in an hour or so, Max. Well, you are a modern day hero. And welcome back to Lars Sivertson. <laughs> hey, Lars. Hi, Max. <laughs> uh, Mark says, is Lars Sivertson pod fit after injury? Is the joyful giggle purring after a few training chats on Zoom? Or does he need a long run of pods to find form? Ian says, to what extent can we expect Lars Sivertson to impact immediately upon a pod following his return after a long-term injury ad- absence? Hashtag easing himself in. I'm expecting to be a little bit rusty, uh, to be honest. I don't. I don't know to what extent people people know what I've done. I mean, you've you, you've referred to it as as a broken ankle on the pod, I think, which is mm-hmm. almost true. Uh, I uh, I broke my lower leg in three places, just above the ankle. Uh, so with nothing really supporting it, the ankle also became dislocated. Uh, so so that whole region was just uh, there's really no polite word for it, but uh, mangled. I think is the <laughs> medical term for it. But uh, it's getting better now. And 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 really, since since it's a bit sort of uh, it's a bit soft and mushy, but since we have a platform, I would actually like to just thank uh, all the surgeons at the Royal Free Hospital, particularly the ones who worked on my leg, and the the nurses who, uh, in a very real sense, had to put up with my shit uh, for a while uh, this summer. Uh, <laughs> extraordinary hardworking people, and I'm very grateful to all of them. And can we just say, Lars, and we're glad you're back, glad you're um, you know slowly but surely getting back on your feet. Um, there are those managers who, if a player is injured, they don't talk to them. Could you confirm for the record that I have been keeping in touch with you- my injured player? 
You have. You've had. You've you've been on the WhatsApp, and uh, yeah, no, uh, everyone's been very nice. So I appreciate Excellent that. Excellent news. Uh, right, let's start Old Trafford. Then Manchester United one, uh, Brighton two. Brighton's first ever win at Old Trafford. Uh, they were. Brilliant. They could have scored after 15 seconds. They scored two excellent goals, should have had a penalty. John, well worth the victory. Oh, 100%. Never underestimate Graham Potter. And two players in particular, two pretty experienced uh, Premier League players, Danny Welbeck, Adam Lallana, both had really, really good games. And I would suggest the the only point at which Manchester United came into the game, obviously they scored, uh, was when those two players tied a little bit. But... Great game management by Brighton. They looked uh, organised. Uh, they uh, they had a plan and they knew what they were going to do. And that's by contrast to the opposition that they faced. Um, it's so early in the season, but United are absolute shite. Uh, let's, let's get it over with now. It, it looked to me from, from, from this game that, that, that Eric Ten Hag had decided to play uh, that, Could I just ask, sorry, John, to cut across you, Max? Were you really hoping we'd we'd give Brighton like more than a perfunctory <laughs> twenty seconds of credit before we got stuck into Manchester United? I, I, I had written in after sort of you know Trossard was great, Pascal Gross's goals, yeah, bit on Welbeck. I had actually written, have we talked about Brighton? Can the first Man United inquest of the season begin? But it's begun, John. There's nothing we can do about it. Okay, yeah. Well, no, I, 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 and and do you know what? I would echo all those thoughts about the players you mentioned. Uh, they were all absolutely excellent. And listen, Brighton fans, uh, you've had your day in the sun. Let's go on about <laughs> Manchester United being rubbish, shall we? Because that's that's what the people want to hear. Manchester United seem to have uh, just just reading it Ten Hag's quote saying that well we didn't have a striker so we decided to play like this it just seemed um, completely disorganised now um, I was speaking to someone yesterday who had uh, been up at Old Trafford or at the training ground on Friday and he was relating to me that he felt that things weren't ready for the new season it all seemed like a bit of a wing and a prayer and that they hoped the team would be better um, well, uh, hope isn't quite enough when you come against a team as organised as Brighton. Now, I was looking at this and uh, that's only the second time United have lost the opening game of the season since Alex Ferguson left the club. Um, and the last time was under Louis van Gaal back in 2014. That was a game against Swansea. And I, I was actually at that game uh, and I just remember that the feeling among the, at Old Trafford was... We've had a dark period. Um, maybe we can start well and feel better about ourselves. But the defeat after that made everyone realise that it was going to be a long road back. And uh, what are we, eight years on? It feels like an even longer road back, doesn't it? I mean, you say after Sir Alex left the club. I mean, he hasn't. 17 minutes in and the camera... <laughs> no, he's still... No, yeah. <laughs> the camera panned to him. Uh, Eric Ten Hag said, I think it was a good start. And then after the first goal, we dropped down a level, dropped down in belief. We made mistakes, and the opponent punished us. Lars, I would say it wasn't a good, it wasn't a good start. I mean, Brighton could have scored after about fifteen seconds. Yeah, there were also a few. In fairness to Ten Hag, there were a few minutes early on where Brighton looked a bit ragged at the back, and Bruno Fernandez had a chance that you know, knowing what a good finisher he he can be on his best day, maybe you should have put away. Uh, but I. Listen, with Ten Hag, it's a it's it's a process, it's a journey, all this sort of thing. It might take some time to to fully settle. But the thing I find just truly inexplicable is that if you asked any person, like not not even 
smart people who work in football or, or, or less smart people who talk about football like us, what does what does United need to improve this summer? What needs to change with this team? I think most people would have said the midfield and, and some sort of crazy freaks like me would have said that you need to get Ronaldo out. That's the most important thing. And then midfield is second priority. But I think everyone would agree striker is a problem. Midfield is a problem. And, and here we are at the first day of the season and you still have Fred and McTominay in midfield. And you have literally no striker. Like, how is this possible for one of the biggest clubs in the world? Like, do you did not like have people who who buy players? Is this not something they've thought of? It's it's very very weird. And I think for Ten Hag, presumably he has been brought into coach in a similar manner to what made him, you know, famous and did very well for him at Ajax. Ajax typically. Uh, keep the possession very well and win the ball back high up the field when they lose it. Manchester United does not have a midfield that's well suited to keeping possession and they do not have forwards who work hard off the ball so they can't win it back high off the field. So I don't, I'm not sure how this is going to work. It's it's very strange. I'm just thinking maybe this sort of behind the scenes brain trust, brains trust of Sir Alex Ferguson, Brian Robson and David Gill haven't convened (laughs) for their first lunch yet therefore haven't been able to tell the higher-ups that maybe we need a striker and a midfielder, ideally a midfielder who wants to come and play for us. I don't know, maybe he's not uh, Eric Ten Hag's cup of tea, but I'm surprised they haven't gone all out to try and bring Declan Rice to Manchester United. Maybe he would have no interest in going. I don't know, but there were so many players today just completely off it. Marcus Rashford, uh, Lissandra Martinez had a nightmare debut. Uh, Fred and Scott McTominay were poor. Harry Maguire was poor. I thought David De Gea should have done better for um, the first goal. And because he, he went to go with his feet and, and when he could have dived into the path of, I think it was Adam Lalana who was running towards him, but he seemed to chicken out with the challenge. Um you know, you could go on. Bruno Fernandes didn't do much. And we said it repeatedly last season, and it was no different today. They're just a very easy team to play against. Yeah, and Brighton are good. And Brighton, the way they the way they kept the ball, Barry, you know, they, they looked so good. Like, like little triangles, keeping the ball, time on the ball, all of them. I mean, it is always a balance of one team playing well and one team playing badly. But, but like, how good are Brighton? Like, will Brighton do that against every team? Probably not. They may well do. Um, I think one player who stood out for me that we haven't name-checked yet was Moise Casido. He was brilliant, yeah, yeah. absolutely brilliant for them. Um, I think it was a combination of them being good, Manchester United being easy to play against, and Manchester United using even huge gaps all over the field that made the execution of Brighton much more easy for them than it should have been. But... Um, we all know Brighton are good, and their problem has been uh, toothlessness up front. Now, as someone pointed out, we, we mentioned that on the sh- radio show this morning, as someone pointed out they scored 13 goals in the last five games of the season last season, which means that they scored 29 in the rest of the games. What was it, 33 games of the season? So that's not that's just not enough. But if they can score goals... I I could see them. I I you know they've definitely improved on what was ninth last season. Uh, who knows? Graham Potter is an outstanding manager. Tony Bloom 
is a very good football club chairman. Uh, he's a very, very shrewd operator. And, yeah, Brighton could become a, a force to be reckoned with. I just, there's something about Brighton tonking United, which is particularly, like, striking, because Brighton just seems to be everything United aren't. They're such the opposite, club-wise, in that they're a club who sign a lot of, if not unknown, then certainly not at all high-profile players. And they're they're identified and scouted to, to come in and sit and suit their system and not cost a lot of money. And they're put into this system by a coach who's a pretty unflashy guy, just very good at his job, and who's actually given time to work. I mean, the first season Potter was there, results were not amazing. But Brighton just kind of trusted him and said, the underlying numbers look good and we're going to let you keep at it. And it, it, they seem to be doing just a lot of the things they do right is kind of like the stuff United get the most wrong. Uh, so, so watching them beat United is a particularly sort of striking image, I find. Uh, Richard says, if Marco Arnautovic is the answer, what is the question? Yeah, United reportedly in for Arnautovic and Leroy Sane. <laughs> who, who is this Austrian man <laughs> shouting at me for seemingly no reason? <laughs> exactly. You know, instead of Ronaldo yelling at other people for being shit, it'll just be Arnautovic yelling at other people for being shit. And Gareth says, of all the funds available to Eric Ten Hag and United, why has he chosen to do his doodles with one of these beauties? It was one of those biros that you have red, black, uh, yellow, and green, I think it is. Are they the red, black, blue, and green, probably? You know, the four you can pull down? Uh, I like a sort of pre-GCSE biro for Ten Hag. Yes, Do you reckon he did a lot of writing in red? There's just one one thing that crossed my mind. is Right, so Ronaldo came on after 52 minutes. Now, just say for the sake of argument, he had shinned in three goals and United had won the game. Would that not be disastrous for them in the long term, even if it meant they'd won the game? And it would be Eric Ten Hag fashioning a very thorny, barbed wire-wrapped rod for his own back. It would have been very good for Jonathan Wilson, who somehow managed to write that piece again in the today's Observer, <laughs> didn't he? Gotta, <laughs> Which was marvellous Got to play see. the hits. Yeah, People absolutely. want to hear Stairway to Heaven. Um, just to put on, on the, the 57... Second minute substitution. Jurgen Klopp made one of those. Is that a trend for the new season that we're spotting? Uh, is the ninetieth is the ninetieth minute triple attacking substitution? From yeah, yeah, the so cavalry that. coming on. Yeah, that what's was that weirder. About? I, I understand the fifty somethings minute because like you have a word at half time and then you give it like five six minutes and see if anything changes and then you make the change. I mean, there can be a logic to that. But I just think when you're chasing a game and you one nil down or one nil, sorry, two one down, one goal down, and you make three subs in the eighty ninth minute, you're kind of just disrupting your own flow. That just seems like a really strange thing to do. Uh, let's go to Craven Cottage, Fulham two, Liverpool two. Uh, David says now that Liverpool have dropped two points and the title race is over, what are you guys going to talk about for the next ten months? Um, James says. <laughs> Mitrovic was good, wasn't he, Barry? Rich says Fulham played well, didn't they, Barry? Um, can we can we put that gag to bed? It's yeah, okay, really it's done now. It, it is done. That gag is over. Uh, John, you were there, I believe. Um, did you have a nice time? I did actually. I, I, I absolutely loved it. It was a brilliant game. Um, uh, uh, lovely weather, great football. Um, Fulham belying their critics and Mitrovic resplendent. Um, there was one bit, I was watching the highlights last night and I was glad that they showed this, but they didn't show it in the highlights. It was a bit that Ian Wright ran through when Mitrovic decided to go on a solo run uh, in which Ed, you wrote that bit and then he sort of runs out of puff, but he's still so strong that he's holding off Van Dyke. Now, Van Dyke is a big guy, 
but Mitrovic just could not get a hold of him. And I was reading before this, um, uh, before this season, um, Shad Khan, the uh, the club's owner, was talking about how one of the club's main objectives is pretty much keeping Mitro slim uh, for the season, which which they'd managed to do the previous season. He scored forty three goals. Um, he was magnificent in the game. Uh, he terrorised Van Dijk in a, in, in a fashion I've you you, you will rarely see. Uh, but there were, um, and I, I think at the at the source of of Fulham's um, success in that game is that Marco Silva had pretty much opted for last season's tactics, which in the Championship uh, Fulham would go at the opposition, blow them away, get the job done. Now to attempt that against Liverpool is quite brave. Uh, he used pretty much the same team except two additions in midfield in Joe Palinha, who is your y- y- classical Portuguese, uh, you know, midfield anchor. And then Andres Pereira, who, you know, Manchester United fans may recall as a fairly inconsistent player, but a talented one. Pereira had a great game, so did, so did Palinha. Uh, they dominated Liverpool in, in midfield. Um, before Thiago left the field, he had... Um, Harrison Reed all over him like a rash. It was uh, Fulham were, were excellent. Now you know that actually Liverpool could have won the game because they hit the bar in the last minute. But Jurgen Klopp was happy enough to say that they'd escaped. He was happy enough with a draw. Great game. What a, what a way to start the season for me and for, for everybody else over that weekend. I know there'd been a game, game the night before. Just just great stuff. A, a minor classic for me. A minor classic. I think my favourite part, and I, I mentioned this to Barry already on the radio, forgive me for those in that Venn diagram who listen to both, but was uh, was when, the, you know, Mitrovic won the penalty. Like Van Dyke's kind of me, Van, I'm Virgil Van Dyke. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't possibly, do you not know who I am? I don't give away penalties. <laughs> I thought, yeah, Mitrovic was absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, Lars, question, do we, do, we, do we talk about Trent Alexander-Arnold's defending? Um, uh, Mike... Goodman on Twitter saying Trent defending the back post is kind of the Liverpool Death Star's exhaust port, isn't it? Like, Yeah, listen, I, I was going to butt in and just say he probably should have handled that situation a little bit better. You know, the, the, I think it was Peter Crouch who was talking about it, someone who knows the thing or two about being a tall striker and drifting into the back post and nodding things towards goals. Is that like what the fullback can do? And if you, even if you can't beat them in the air, you can try to challenge for the ball at the same time as the striker jumps. And that just sort of unbalances the striker a little bit and just makes it harder. I, I do feel, in fairness to Alexander Arnold, He's not the only right back in the world who'd get smashed in the air by Mitrovic uh, when he's timed his run right and is in the kind of shape he is now. And I think if you had to choose between fullbacks who might win that header and fullbacks who can do what Alexander Arnold can do going forward and in possession, like one of those two things is probably more useful to Liverpool than the other. And I don't think there exists a, a fullback who can do both as well. So. I wouldn't freak. I, w- I wouldn't freak out about it. You know, you might you might occasionally concede some goals because Trent Alexander Arnold isn't Breda Hangelan. But you know what? He's going to give you quite a lot down the other end to make up for it. Are you saying Mitrovic may well score a similar header against Diogo Dalot? Uh, I think that, that I think that might happen. I think that's entirely possible. <laughs> uh, Barry, what did you make of this game? I really enjoyed it. I think Trent Alexander Arnold had a pretty bad day at the office. You know, he was a bit at fault for the goal, obviously. He repeatedly gave the ball away. There was that weird moment where 
on his own in an acre of wilderness, he was receiving a pass and just handled the ball. <laughs> and, you know, he just shook his head as in, oh, I can't do right for doing wrong today. But he was not alone in doing that. Um, lots of errors from Liverpool. Van Dijk had a poor game. Harvey Elliott came on, almost gave away a goal immediately. Ditto Darwin Nunes. But, you know, some of those players did redeem themselves. Darwin Nunes was an absolute menace. Uh, Probably should have started, but we don't know what level his fitness is at. Trent Alexander-Arnold, for all the mistakes he made, he did uh, provide the cross for one of the goals. But there were were a lot of very, very poor performances from Liverpool. I suppose it just speaks volumes for the quality they have in the ranks that they could have. They were only a lick of paint away from getting away with all three points. I suppose to be fair to Jürgen Klopp as well, Lars, the pitch was quite dry, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess is the kind of thing people on social media likes to make fun of Klopp when he says things like that. But I mean, maybe maybe it makes a big deal, maybe it doesn't. I'm kind of interested in John Bruin's take on because this because I'm watching it on TV. I did get the sense, that certainly in the first half, that this was one team that was playing as if every point this season matters a lot to them and one team that was a little bit more chilled out. Was that? Did you get that sense in the stadium? Absolutely, yeah. That's a very good way of putting it. I think... Listen, you're not going to accuse Liverpool of being casual, but they did seem a bit distracted from the start. And Fulham, I mean, the fans played a big part as well, just just went for it uh, and pushed and pressed and harried. That, that, that experienced core of Liverpool players, none of them enjoyed themselves. Firmino at centre-forward, Jordan Henderson didn't have a particularly good afternoon. They, they, they sort of, I'm not, necessarily, not necessarily fresher, but a, a team that... that you could actually say that it felt like they wanted it more. Now, of course, Liverpool know that even slipping up this early in the season is, if not fatal, it's damaging to their hopes. And we're in this truncated 16-match, what are we going to call this? This this schedule till like November the 11th or whatever, you've got to play 16 matches and go away and then come back. And it, it's and Liverpool trying to pace themselves. Well, you can't pace yourself in this season. And th- there is this aspect, I su- suggest that, Last season's effort, there might be something of a hangover from that. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. I'm not sure if that's the case, but it looked that way to me. You can't pace yourself like one point a game. Then you'll probably get relegated, won't you? Uh, Liverpool had six players over 30 in their starting eleven. First time they've done so in a Premier League match since February 1994. Does anyone want to guess any of the players over 30 in 1994? Uh, John Barnes. Correct. Jan Mulby. Nope. Ronnie Whelan. Correct. Uh, Ian Rush. Correct. This is really good from Bruin. Alan Hansen. Nope. How, uh, Steve Nicholl. Correct. Um, this is stunning from Bruin. I'm, I'm starting to I'm starting to, to go a bit dry at this point. Uh, um, Clues. Goalkeeper. Bruce. Correct. And centre-back. Fairhead centre-back. Steve Staunton. Mark Wright. Mark Wright. Very good. Um, can I just mention the camera angle at Craven Cottage? Way too high. Very disappointing. Yeah, when I was watching Match of the Day, I thought, why we, when did this game happen at Spurs? Yeah, you know, it was, know. <laughs> it, Yeah, that's the new stand. Not finished just yet, actually, I should know, mention. But, you know. No, new stand, fine. Don't change the gantry. We know yeah. where Fulham. We know what Fulham looks like on the telly. Yeah, changing yeah. it is just ah, oh, it's an absolute nightmare. 
Uh, just enough time to do West Ham nil, Manchester City 2. Um, uh, look, not a huge amount to talk about in this game, Barry, apart from Erling Braut Haaland might score a million goals this season. <laughs> yep. And we all know what kind of goals he scores. Well, he scores all kinds of goals, but I suppose his trademark is the run in behind. We said last week that he was making the runs, but they were uh, City's players weren't picking him out. Well, they very much did that today. The second goal particularly um, was a, sort of a classic Haaland goal. Um, much was made on television of his acceleration, like a greyhound breaking out of a track or a cheetah chasing a gazelle. And um, uh, I suspect he will score at least 30 goals this season if he stays fit and possibly 40. Lars, you made a, a, a good point on the WhatsApp. And I was thinking that that Pep might have secretly hated that goal. Oh, he it's must just do. too simple. He absolutely must do. You know, he's a big fan of, of the patient build-up and using all these moves. I mean, there's a bit in a book called Pep Confidential by Marty Pernau where he was kind of, uh, the, the the author was kind of following him around uh, and, and watching him work and all that, where it's all about how Guardiola believes in you have to have a sequence of 15 passes to fully develop a move, uh, you know, so every player ends up in the right place and the, everything is ready. There's like the, the whole chess thing where it's like, no, you don't. You need one pass into Holland. That's like, that's like just just play it in behind to him. It's fine. And any wonder, like this is no fun for Guardiola at all. Like it's not his system. It's not his brilliant sort of triangles and zones being occupied and juego de posición and all this. It's just like getting it in behind to the fast fast guy who no one can stop. I I think he secretly hates it. Uh, I, of course, scoring goals and winning games is fun, but I, I am intrigued to see because if you just let. De Bruyne and Gundogan and all these other great players play those passes to Holland all year. It's going to be completely unstoppable. You know, there's, there's not much, much much you can do about it. Uh, I I wrote down in my notes in the first half, Holland's runs not being spotted, but you know, then then they were. And if if you'll indulge me for a second, I feel like there's a miniature version. Well, we had a miniature version of this for the Norwegian national team uh, because you'll know our other big star is Martin Ødegaard and Martin Ødegaard is a wonderful player, but he can be a little bit circumspect. You know, he likes these little one-twos and these sort of short passes and this sort of stuff. Arsenal fans know what I'm talking about. Uh, he does not necessarily just whack it into space the second he gets it, which is what Holland wants him to do. And early on with them two for the national team, there was a clear bit of frustration with Holland. Like, just stop, like, stop laying it off to someone. Like, just knock it in behind to me. And one game when he really did that was against Romania we won 4-0 the first goal came after a very early ball from Erdogan to Holland and Erdogan was having his post-match interview and Holland crashed the interview Holland interrupted the interview and then volunteered his time to be on TV which is not something he, he usually loves doing just to tell the cameras I want to praise this guy Erdogan because he finally came to his senses and passed to me <laughs> which was there was a sort of joking tone there but he was like just stop messing about and just get it in behind to me and I get the sense with him now that that's kind of what he wants to do to the entire City team just stop messing about with these passing triangles and all this like positional stuff, just get it in behind. Like I'll score goals. Don't worry about it. I, I, I just felt that, well, that, that those goals came in those sort of brief slivers of of the game where West Ham were actually getting somewhere, and then they get somewhere, and then City go down to the end and win a penalty and then score. So, how are you going to defend against Haaland? Play badly. That's is that is that, is that the? <laughs> no, is that, I can just see. I can just see like the end like. 
City have won the quadruple. Pep's finally won the Champions League and he's just in a room with a glass of wine just going, but it doesn't feel... I feel, yeah, feel dirty. Like, this. Yeah, I yeah. feel yeah. dirty. It's like, you know, it's like a... It's like one of your bands that you like, John, actually writing a hit and then going, <laughs> oh, but it's not, it's not the music. It's, you know, it's shit music. You know, that's the, we don't want to talk about that song. We hate that song. It's that, exactly that kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe it's because it was the last of uh, a, a sort of marathon football watching me weekend. It was the home stretch. And as much as I like watching super elite footballers playing very good football. I was quite bored during this game. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It, it sunk a bit, so let's not talk about it anymore. And we'll end part one, and we'll start part two with uh, champions-elect Tottenham Hotspur. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Alan says, will Spurs have the title sewn up before the World Cup? As Vonamir says, did Ralph Hassan, who will dress well enough for his funeral? Um, Southampton took the lead, didn't they, after 12 minutes? And, uh, and they do that a lot, Southampton. And then they let in four. And Spurs, Lars, were utterly relentless, actually. Yeah, that's a, that's a good word. I saw um, Kulusevski, who was very, very good, spoke to Norwegian TV after the game and said, he said, we're fit, we feel strong, they tired as the game went on and there was more space. Uh, and, and I thought that was kind of it. You know, Southampton tried to hang with Spurs, but but Spurs just looked like they got stronger throughout the game. And I think we, we've all seen the videos of, of Conte sort of tormenting the players with running drills and stuff in Korea and all of that. And, and I wonder if... I mean, obviously, the experts disagree on how good for you that actually is. I mean, I was, I was, I was. I'm always waiting for Raymond Verheyen to pi- pipe up again when you, those videos come up, uh, and about how bad it is for the players. But it does. I think it has a mental dimension. You know, when you sort of make them completely empty themselves physically in preseason, they kind of get used to to going to places in terms of their endurance and just really putting everything they have out there. And uh, they just look in tremendous nick. And uh, once they got going, there wasn't much much chance of Southampton stopping him, I didn't think. And actually, Barry, that I think if you're a Spurs fan, you're excited because not only did they win very comfortably, but none of their new signings started and they didn't have to rely on Kane and Son. Yeah, it's not often they score four goals with with neither of the two lads getting on the score sheet. It, it was a very impressive performance. Southampton were dismal despite taking the lead. Talk about Ralph Hasenhutl's uh, suit. He, he reminds me of... Uh, he was dressed like the father of a, the bride at a wedding. And 
when Mohammed Salisu turned that ball into his own net. <laughs> the camera cut to Hasnoodle, and he was just sitting with his head down, shaking his head with a look of utter disgust on his face, as if in his role as the bride's father, someone had just told him that they'd walked in and the groom shagging his wife. So uh, it was... <laughs> Very specific metaphor. I fear for him... Um, Oh, so um, you know, Spurs were very good, but Southampton were. Mm, ben says the changing of the backroom staff at Southampton seems to have done the trick, <laughs> hasn't it, Barry? Um, <laughs> I, I, what what do we know about this Spurs side that we didn't prior to this game, John? One thing is, uh, Harry Kane is a slow starter to the season. Uh, that's that's the been the not a cliche it's actually been a statistical proof and uh if they're able to to stroll through matches without Kane at top gear that's a great sign so early in the season we know how antonio conte teams play we've seen the vomit on a korean pitch to to show how they're working um i don't think anyone's at, at, you know, tottenham or everybody's wild card for the season it's going to plan thus far but this is Tottenham. Let's see. Jack says, will you at least comment? I think Jack is an Arsenal fan. Will you at least comment on Romero's ignored red card tackle in the Spurs game? If that was Xhaka, Lars, I mean, it was quite, I mean, what's he doing? I don't know. If that was, Ch- this is, but this is the difference. If it was Chaka, he would have gone studs up like an idiot and then sent <laughs> off. Like it's, it's a really dumb tackle, right? And this is like with Romero, as someone who primarily wants football to be fun, I like this about Romero. He has a sort of element of the head case that sometimes he'll just clatter a fella at 4-1 up for no reason whatsoever. But if I was contact, I'd be maybe telling him to like this. At 4-1 up, there's no real reason to do that. But but the reason it's not, I mean, if you're interested, the reason it's not a red card is because he there were no studs involved. There were no straight legs. I mean, he, he kind of kept the legs in a... On the uh, on the ground in a way that's sort of it's largely it's not as considered a dangerous challenge, uh, but it's also a really daft thing to do uh, under the circumstances. Uh, either way, also a good win for Arsenal uh, on the opening day on Friday night. Uh, producer Joel's written Jesus, brilliant first half. I don't know if that is just shock that it was a brilliant first half or that Gabriel Jesus was brilliant in the first <laughs> half, but. He was brilliant. And actually, Arsenal in the first half, Barry, were excellent, weren't they? Yeah, they were really, really impressive. Oh, God, this game seems so long ago now. I'm struggling to remember it. But <laughs> they they were brilliant in the first half, and then they lost control of the game in the second half. And I suppose Mikel Arteta will will want to, to know why that happened when they seemed in complete control. Um, I, I have quite a few Arsenal fans in my circle of friends for my sins, and... They are all. They have all lost the run of themselves already on the back of a <laughs> successful preseason and a two-nil win over Crystal Palace. So yeah, it was impressive, but you have to put in the it's Arsenal caveat, same as you have to do with Spurs, and a, a good win. But I would not be reading too much into it yet. Lars, uh, William Saliba had a had a. A very impressive game at centre back. He's only twenty one as well. Yeah, uh, very good player. He was he was good for Marseille last season, and uh, they were kind of hoping he'd come back, and and he hasn't. He's, uh, you know, he he was signed for quite a lot of money when, when they brought him in, and I think people were then kind of surprised that he was loaned out for as long as he was. But but sometimes that's what a player needs in terms of uh, maturing a little bit. And uh, three years out on loan, maybe longer than fans were hoping for when he was brought in, but uh, certainly looks ready for the Premier League now and was very good for Marseille last season. 
And actually, John, I thought Crystal Palace really contributed to this game and, and are a decent side and Patrick Vieira has them playing good football and, and they could perhaps consider some a little unlucky in this game. Well, I, I'm not tipping them for relegation this season, let's say that. What comes to mind, it was a miss by Eberechi Eze, wasn't they? Which yeah. maybe they... I think they were. I think actually they were pretty well beaten in that game, but plenty to go off. It's a talented squad. Uh, it's they're progressive, um, and I don't think we can talk about Palace as they're being. Oh, there's probably three teams worse than them because they ought to be pushing into mid-table now uh, and continuing that progress. Um, I feel it's probably a good time to support Crystal Palace. Um, Exciting times still, despite losing that game. Big talking point was the debut of Sky Sports' new badges instead of three-letter acronyms. Um, I was very upset by this because obviously I don't like change and uh, and I like playing the game who's playing with... Well, yeah, Mrs. it Rushton. meant that Cryos is was put out yeah. of... Put out a commission for this game, doesn't it? I know, very upsetting. If Sky got the champion, the rights to the Champions League back, that would be quite difficult. You know, if Ferenc Varos are playing Sturm Graz, right, and those badges are up there, then I'm really struggling. You know, so I think, I think, you know, it's nice. I like to, I like to have the letters there, but you know, it's good. It's innovation. I don't is think good. Sky can Mike afford says, the Champions League, Matt. You're all right. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, given the change in rules, would it be a good idea for TV companies to add an extra graphic in the second half indicating how many subs each team has used, has left? Or am I being totally ridiculous? Nods from Lars Simpson and John Bruin. John. I, I, I think some of the managers would could do with that, judging by what's <laughs> gone on over this weekend. it's. T- I mean, uh, the Premier League was has been slow for the five subs thing anyway. I mean, we had it briefly, didn't we, during pandemic football? Um but yeah, as as Lars said earlier, that that rather bizarre cavalry charge that Manchester United produced at the end of their game, um, and if you're writing a match report uh, as a professional thing and you have to put all the substitutions in, uh, it makes it very difficult in the last ten minutes because it seems if ten subs come on, that's a lot. That's a hefty workload for us, us journalists. You know, I'm not, this is why I'm against it. I think. I think Frank Lampard might have got caught out over the weekend with the substitutes because his hand was forced quite early with um, the injury to Bed Godfrey, which I'm sure we'll get to, and uh, then Yerry Mina as well. And I, I suspect he might have liked to have made another substitute substitution after uh, Yerry Mina, but he'd, he'd used his three windows of opportunity. Um, just explain that because that is news to me. I didn't know. We'll do the Everton-Chelsea now. Why not? But... So you're only allowed. You're not allowed to do five. So you you're allowed to use five substitutes. You can make as many as you like at half time, but apart from that, you can only use you've three windows of opportunity to to make substitutes. So say lamps uh, and Bed Godfrey injured got injured. He brought on Mason Holgate. Then on the hour mark, he brought in uh, the artist formerly known as Deli Ali for Dwight McNeil. And uh, then 70 minutes, Yerry Mina had, had knacked his ankle. So he had to go off and he was replaced with Ruben Venegre. So Frank had two substitutes left, but couldn't use e- either of them because he'd used his three windows of opportunity. So he should probably have brought someone else on um, at the same time as he was replacing Yerry Mina. So, so yeah, so you, we, 
we need a graphic and we need maybe little windows. You can have little windows with all the substitutes and then if they come on together, they go through the same window or like life-size windows on the pitch for the fourth official to say, you have to walk through this window. They could obviously be different shapes, the windows, to give it a real play school vibe. Um, what did you make of the Everton-Chelsea game? Substitutions aside, Lars. It wasn't the best game of the weekend. I, uh... <laughs> I, I, I simultaneously sort of had... Um... Well, Dortmund Leverkusen was on at the same time, and I tried to sort of double screen it, and I did find my gaze drawn to the the the, the more uh, uh, more dynamic charms of the Bundesliga during that encounter. But 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 generally speaking, there's something. Chelsea are obviously very tidy, and they're good on the ball, and everyone knows where to go, and they're well coached. But there's something slightly inert going forward about them, and it's kind of hard to put your finger on it. I I wonder with the formation they play, the sort of three four three thing. If one of the sort of wide forwards in, the, in inverted commas is Mason Mount, who's kind of more of a midfielder anyway, you're, you're, there's just not a lot of attackers there. And, and if your wingbacks aren't getting forward, there's just not a lot happening. So they keep the ball very well, but it's kind of frustrating to watch them sometimes, I feel. Do you think they need like a big centre forward? Do you think that would help them? <laughs> <laughs> no no yes, comment. Yes, I, I, I see... I see. I see that joke, but on a more serious note, I think it's more about the wingbacks getting further forward and getting into the box and stuff. I think that could really give them some I feel like I feel like you've come back forward. with more of a Barry vibe, of which, you know, normally you're quite a generous, <laughs> I'll laugh at anything type thing. But, you know, now you're like, you know, you've really got, because you've got, you've got to it earn it. Sort of, you've got to earn it now oh, from Sivertson. It's just the several months of just constant pain. It's just sort of dulled, dulled me a little bit. I tell you what, Everton could have done with a big centre forward during that game. They were conspicuously missing one um, because Dominic Calvert-Lewin pulled up lame during the week and they're going to be without him for, I think, six weeks, two months, something like that. So uh, Solomon Rondon was was suspended, but Solomon Rondon's he's no longer the best player in the world, as Wilson once (laughs) purported. Let's face it, he's he's lost that uh, yard of pace he never really had. And... um, he he didn't look particularly uh, up to much last season when he got opportunities. I mean, Frank Lampard was very. He said he was very pleased with Everton's performance. Thought they were all right, um, but Chelsea were poor. And Frank Lampard also said, "Oh, the crowd were brilliant. They really got behind us." And I, I was thinking, not. No, they didn't. They seemed <laughs> bored out of their minds. And in for almost the entirety of the second half, it was uh, Emirates-esque in, in its silence. And that's quite rare at Goodison Park, I think. But, yeah, it was. it's just a very flat game for a season opener. And the crowd just seemed bored. Um, all right. Uh, Kyle says, uh, with Timo Werner going back to Leipzig, do you think he'll take his buckets with him or leave them for Chelsea to utilise on another goal scorer? Um, yeah, good luck to them. Connor Cody to Everton, John. Uh, looks like it's happening. What do, what do we think about that one? Well, it, Connor Cody's the type of solid citizen that um, that Frank Lampard probably likes to have around. I think he'd probably be missed by Wolves because uh, he has been such a a mainstay of that club in its its recent revival. Um, Cody leaving Wolves. Wolves, are, Wolves. Uh, I think I say this every time you, you ask me about Wolves. They remain a mystery. Uh, but I do think there is, their lack of players coming in this summer um, 
indicates that their owners don't quite have the money they had a while ago. Um, is the Great Wolves project that uh, uh, my friend Barry here had tipping for Champions League glory two or three years ago, is that coming to an end? Uh, and with, with, with Cody departing the club, is that... Well, the thing is, they've brought in Nathan Collins. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. It's a very good question, and we'll answer it in part three. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, let's start then with Leeds 2, Wolves 1. A question on Wolves, Barry. Do you think that project that you at one point thought had them getting into the Champions League with like, perhaps Conor Cody leaving is is over, is ebbing away? Have I phrased that exactly like John did one minute ago? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I, I, I thought they were quite good in this game. I, I understand Cody leaving. He's not going to be first choice because Nathan Collins has come in. Max Kilman is outstanding defender as well. So they're going to be the two first choice defenders, central defenders. But then we saw with Everton how quickly things can change. That's why Cody's presumably going to to Everton because uh, Ben Godfrey has broken his ankle in a in a freak accident. I I think he'll be decent for Everton. Uh, he's he's good. He's he's apparently. A great fella to have around the place. I've said before, that can't be overestimated or overstated how, how important that is. And in this particular game, I didn't think Wolves were terrible. I, I wasn't expecting much from them, I must confess. Uh, and they probably deserve something from the game. I think both managers said afterwards that they deserved to win. It was Leeds who did win. And uh, I think it was important for Jesse Marsh to to get off to a winning start at Elland Road, where the crowd, I suspect, aren't fully behind him yet, but that will certainly help him. And Brendan Aronson, who's been brought in to replace Calvin Phillips, had a very good game, so that will also keep the crowd happy because they are big boots to fill. Yeah, as to the atmosphere, as it tends to, sounded great. And I just thought it was a really fun game, this, John. Yeah, yeah, uh, but was the most fun uh, the incident between the two managers. Yes, Bruno Large accused Jesse Marsh of saying something. Here are his quotes. In the first half, there were things that we cannot say, especially in these days. And I heard that. So if someone wants to apologise to me, it should be in that moment, not in the end when you've won the game. I was thinking that he was using one of those American swear words, those colourful metaphors that that might offend the, your average conservative uh, religious Portuguese gentleman. You know, so like say MF would be one, uh, you know, which is the type of thing that you probably don't say about uh, a Portuguese gentleman's mother, you know. But yeah, nice to see Patrick Bamford as well, starting for Leeds. Uh, obviously, Boyd from his appearance when he came to watch Football Weekly Live <laughs> in Leeds. We think, yeah. Possibly, or we think. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah. Do we? Well, Someone took a photo of someone who the back of his head looked quite a lot like Patrick Bamford. And we thought, Patrick Bamford has grade seven violin. If any footballer is going to come to Football Weekly Live, it's him. God, you've got notions, haven't you? (laughs) (laughs) You've seen the rest of our crowd. (laughs) I don't think there's too many of them playing grade seven violin. Hey, where you at Football Weekly Live and what musical qualifications have you got? Let us know. Uh, let's go to the Vitality Bournemouth 2, Aston Villa nil. Great result for Bournemouth this uh, last. James is after your Premier League predictions during the week. Sorry, just, I just need to go back to this. Didn't we, during the Football Weekly Live, 
event at Leeds, spend a large amount of time on stage talking about where Patrick Bamford would probably be on his summer holidays because he he'd have you know he wouldn't be the type who'd just go to Dubai or Las Vegas. He'd probably go and you know yeah he'd go to canoeing up the yeah. Amazon. Oh, or yeah, or he'd just be at the you know he'd be at the Barbican watching great concerts or he'd be watching he's been at the proms in recent weeks yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely um uh, at the vitality uh uh, if you don't mind me moving on barry um this was a a a really important win for bournemouth james says after your premier league predictions during the week and the result yesterday are you still all relegating bournemouth lars we don't know if you're relegating bournemouth but have you changed your mind after uh, the weekend I had them last in my preview as well. And I think completely changing your mind after one game is completely daft. Uh, But that doesn't take away from the fact that it was a great result for them and a very important result, given that in their next couple of games, they got City, Arsenal and Liverpool. So it's probably not a bad idea to get some points on the board here. And uh, no, good for them. I was personally, this will get edited out, but I was delighted to see Kiefer Moore uh, score a goal here because Kiefer Moore whose full name, by the way, is Kiefer Roberto Francisco Moore, which I think is also fantastic. But he actually spent some time on loan in Norway in uh, 2015, where he scored no goals in 11 appearances for Viking. Uh, but he scored twice for Viking second team, Viking two, both against Kopovic, uh, which led me to think he is definitely the only player who has scored a brace against Kopovic in the Norwegian fourth tier and who has now also scored in the Premier League. That has definitely never happened before. The only concern is that Egil Ostenstad is from around there and might have feasibly, certainly Kopovic's youth teams, the A-team, not sure. I have tweeted Egil Ostenstad. He's not gone back to me. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'll update you on that. But so far, key for yeah. more, only player who's done this. Is the target man back, John? Like, Kiefer Moore was great. Darwin Nunes was good. Welbeck, okay, not necessarily like a totally a target man, but played that kind of role. You know, uh, there, there were other performances the weekend that suggests that maybe this kind of centre-forward has a place in modern football. Is Erling Haaland a target man as well? Yeah, I reckon. I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Um, I, yeah. It's good to have the big striker back, isn't it? It feels like, um, well, the two big managers in the league, uh, Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola, have regressed to the mean of getting up front to the big man, as much as it goes against Pep's instincts. And... Uh, you know, um, Chris Wood is still about, I suppose, though there may be a bit of a minor player at, at Newcastle. Um, and, and maybe now that Burnley are no longer with us, we needed the, the spread of target men to be to, to be through the rest of the league. Obviously, uh, the, the target man of the weekend, Alexander Mitrovic. There, there is no, there is no, well, larger target, actually, than, than, than he uh, in, in the Premier League. So, yeah, and, and Kiefer Moore... He's an absolute tower of a player. Great goal. Congratulations to Bournemouth. And I think um, this is through necessity, of course. They had to go for what they went for last season because they haven't been able to bring in anyone. They're already thin on numbers. Um, Scott Parker said, didn't he, that they actually had a worse squad than they had last season. Um, But they hit the ground running. Can we introduce a negative point? That's usually my role in this. Yes. Well, is is Stephen Gerrard covertly doing or perhaps overtly doing not a great job at Aston Villa well yeah the, the signs are there aren't they I saw a, a, a rather naughty sort of you know inter- Twitter thing which was comparing Gary Neville's record at Valencia to 
Stephen's uh, record at Aston Villa, and it's almost identical. In fact, I think it is identical. So, uh, yeah, uh, big problems there. Um, the, the suggestion is, and I'm always quite wary of this, that the, his coach, Michael Beale, has gone to QPR, and it's one of those situations where people suggest that he's been really the real power behind the throne and that Stephen Gerrard will be lost without him. Uh, let's say one to watch, but the feedback that I was able to see from Villa fans of their team's performance during that game was resoundingly negative. It was a dreadful performance from them. Apparently he's Mick Beale, uh, insistent on being called Mick. Apologies, he's not a Michael, Mick. with our apologies to Mick Beale. Because Gerard spoke on this to the Robbie Fowler podcast, I believe, uh, where he said, and I think this is great, he said, it would take me 15 to 20 years to become as good as Mick Beale is as an on-pitch coach delivering sessions on a daily basis. And he said, what I'll never do is try to do someone else's job when they're better at me at doing it. And, and, and I think that's a sign of strength, like from a leader, that you're intelligent enough to, like, if you have someone in your team who's very good at this, you let them do it. But it's also then if that guy leaves... Uh, yeah. people well, are going to people are going to look very let it happen. Then. Yeah, people yeah. are going to look very carefully at you. And they've appointed Neil Critchley, uh, who used to work with uh, Gerard at the Liverpool Youth uh, Department, done really well as manager of Blackpool. Maybe he'll fill the gap. I, I I wouldn't know. I'm not at the Villa training facility very often or at all. Uh, but, but certainly it's it's not unreasonable to keep a, to be watching very closely how Villa start this season. Put it that way. Neil says, I'm trying to work out who from Barry, Lars or John Bruin is best qualified to analyse Scott Parker's jacket. Uh, let's go to Barry. I, I, my sense of fashion is diabolical. I encountered Scott Parker at Sandown Races years ago when he was a Chelsea player and he was wearing a just a bog-standard blue anorak. He seems to have got quite dapper in, in the meantime. Uh, four stripes in the sleeve. What did we find out that that he's a squadron commander squadron commander parker yes now yeah. yes he has always been the manager who looks the most like a spitfire pilot so actually confirming that it's squadron commander that's his rank i think if nothing else then we've we've placed them in in that world which is good um let's go to st james's park newcastle too nottingham forest nil um fabian shares gold john that was good wasn't it an unlikely source you have to say it was you have to say I didn't expect to see that no um well, uh, okay, let's reflect on Forrest first. Um, they didn't have the continuity uh, that the other two promoted teams had at the start of the season and got a different result. Um, but we have to credit Newcastle with a fine performance. Um, and although they haven't splashed the cash uh, as wildly as, as some might have expected um I think the signing of Bruno Guimaraes in January is absolutely crucial. He looks a brilliant player um, and I'm sure many of the top clubs are looking at him thinking, why didn't we get him? Because I thought, uh, you know, from from the bits that I saw on match today uh, and they did run a segue, didn't they, with Alan Shearer going through it. He looks absolutely excellent. He, he did for much of the time last season. Newcastle continue uh, to, to be a place of optimism. And I read in The Athletic uh, this weekend, new cheese boards as well. So uh, congratulations to them. Yeah. I, the story was that Mike Ashley just well, he just ripped up a few old chairs and gave them to the chef. He refused to pay for new cheese boards so that the chef uh, took it upon himself to uh, break up some old chairs that were in a storeroom 
and convert the, the wood into cheese boards. And when uh, Amanda Stavely came in, she shelled out quite a lot of money to buy new cheese boards. Now, that's symbolic of something. I don't, I don't know, quite know what, but... Um, Are you thinking chopping blocks? You said that, Barry, not me. I, Fulham notoriously sort of, you know, have the Fulham cheese board and we expect Fulham fans to, uh, you know, to eat lots of different kinds of cheeses. You wouldn't necessarily have Newcastle fans down as, as you know, Ooh. wanting cheese but this is the players, surely. This wouldn't is. Well, I, is this for the, it's for the players? How much cheese do players eat? Or am I being a, a southern snob there? I think you are a bit. I mean, everyone likes a cheese board, yeah. but... Well, everyone likes cheese, but I don't think football fans go to the game to want to eat a cheese board. Well, I'm it's presuming like this is in the what passes for the corporate section at St. James's Park. I've never yeah, been there, so um, I don't know if they have yeah. corporate... I presume they have corporate facilities. Yeah, yeah. they do, yeah. 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 And you can't yeah. be feeding yeah. elite athletes loads of cheese. I mean, <laughs> no, I don't think you can, can you? Antonio Conte wouldn't want that before you <laughs> ran up and down a pitch in, in Seoul, yeah, you, hurling up you Put away half a kilo of Stilton. <laughs> Anyway, um, uh, Callum Wilson's goal as well, uh, back yeah, to the football, yeah. Barry, was wonderful. Oh, it was a beauty. Absolute beauty. The, yeah, Joe Ellington was brilliant again, uh, just a, a player reborn. Uh, his pullback from the byline. But Wilson had so much work to do, get in front of his uh, Nikati and then just a little flick with the outside of his right boot. It was in, in, and he had very little room in which to work. And, and it was a really tight angle. It was a fantastic goal, but he will score goals. We all know what the problem is there. Can you keep him fit? Um, uh, Just a, a note on how nice it was to see a, a shirt without a sponsor. I, I'm not aware of why Nottingham Forest don't have one and maybe they'll get one, you know, maybe they'll get one of like a, a crypto, uh, one of Philippe's favourite crypto you know, non-existent companies fronted by just a... <laughs> non-existent crypto bookie. <laughs> fronted by a person that doesn't exist, which is just a stock photo from Getty Images that Philippe will talk about for about six hours the next time he's on, and it'll all be edited out. Um, but we will see. Uh, let's uh, Finally, let's go to the King Power. Leicester 2, uh, Brentford 2. Uh, two lovely left-footed strikes here, Lars. A pure one from Kean and Dewsbury Hall. And one bent in by Josh De Silva. Which did you prefer and why? Josh De Silva, maybe, because it had a kind of curl on it, whereas Juice Behold was the sort of low drive, wasn't it? Which aesthetically, maybe not quite as pleasing on the eye. I think so. Um, Leicester will be a bit annoyed, though, Lars, aren't they? Because it sort of felt quite Leicester-y, this. Maybe leicester is becoming a thing. I, I, I suppose leicester could be a thing. I, I still haven't quite gotten over the fact that their goalkeeper just left. I think that is a very strange thing to happen to a football club right on the... I, I, know, I know we should talk more about the game, but just bef- right on the eve of the new season, you're, you're captain of many years and sort of star goalkeeper just ah, off. I'm not, it's not, there wasn't even a transfer fee, was there? He was just, I'm out of here. I mean, I think he is, I mean, he is Danish, of course, so he is a Scandinavian man. And everyone who knows anything about the sort of life cycle of Scandinavians know that a Scandinavian person of any sort of resources will, when he's kind of approaching the latter years of his career, definitely buy a house in Spain and near the Mediterranean and sort of, so I think he is kind of showing his, uh, showing some of his sort of, uh, yeah, some cultural background there. It's like, it's time now. I've got to get to the south to, to see the more sun. It's a very strange situation for Brentford, I think. For Brentford, sorry, for Leicester. Good Lord. But, but Danny Ward is a, 
Because I remember seeing Danny Ward for Wales going, God, he's good. Who does he play for? And then someone said Leicester. He's been at Leicester for years and has barely played. Now is your big chance, Danny. It, 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 yeah, but like Lars, I was a bit taken aback by that. Um, I think the Ineos money at Nice probably uh, attracted Casper, who's 35 and, uh, let us say, has been one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League for quite a few years now. That would be a big loss. Um yeah, Leicester is quite an interesting way to look at it. Uh, there's a there's a club where I think a few stories to come, uh, particularly in the transfer window over the next month or so, uh, because they've got a lot of players that other clubs want and think they can get. Though uh, I was hearing that the fee for Fafana could go as high as £80 million for Fafana, which I found astronomical. Uh, and then you've also got the Newcastle's chase of... Harvey Barnes and James Madison. You've got Yuri Tielemans. And one of the things is that uh, Leicester squad is a little bit too big. So they're having to get rid of players. Um, and it seems like they've got to sell to buy. Uh, but they're going to, if they do sell those types of players, other clubs are going to know they've got lots of money to spend. It, it, it's they, they seem a bit unprepared for this season. Let's put it that way. We were mentioning multi-ball on the uh, WhatsApp group, <laughs> which commentators keep talking yeah. about multi-ball. No, specifically, the multi-ball system is the, the phrase multi-ball system, that I absolutely which, cannot deal with. Well, well, Lars, is it is it just there's more than one football at the yes. ground? Which feels to me has been happened. That's been around for quite it's a while. Having more than it? one ball. It's very strange. I mean, it's not a system. It's not like a sort of... You don't have sort of menacing robots roaming the touch touchlines looking for lost balls to immediately sort of chug. You just have more than one ball. So don't 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 call it anything. I thought that this was my what I understood of multi ball was that clubs could previously either choose to have multi ball or not have multi ball. So certain oh, right. teams uh, who'd like to process the balls quickly. <laughs> uh, so the, the example I'm thinking of is that Everton in the days when they had Duncan Ferguson would use multi-ball because you get it quick and you throw it in and you aim at Big Dunk or something like that. But there was the the odd accusation that certain teams, not necessarily Everton, would use multi-ball when it suited them and then when it didn't suit them. Um, and I suppose it, it, it is the logic of it that it, it, it stops the time-wasting where um, you know players are hunting for a ball that doesn't reappear. And if, if there are multi... It, it's... Yeah, I, I, I think it's been it's been an optional thing and now it's been introduced there, but I might be totally wrong. That was always my reading of it. I just think you've always clearly had more than one ball at a professional football game. Not having that would be mad, and I don't know why it's referred to as a system. I would quite like there to be just one ball, and if it goes over the stands, we just have to wait. You mentioned Duncan Ferguson. Presumably if he gets back into management and... Uh, and, and I always presume it's Everton, but whoever, uh, you know, his team score a goal and there are no ball boys, he'll pick up the multi-ball system and hold it aloft <laughs> as a wonderful moment. Uh, anyway, uh, look, that'll do for today. Um, thank you so much, Barry. You're welcome, Max. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to have you back, Lars. Thank you very much, Max. I will try to rediscover my chair and not... <laughs> I realised that I ended complaining about the multi-ball system being in operation as well, so I'm just not doing... No, you're need right. to be more cheerful. Right. I'm right. Absolutely right. That was part need gold. need to be more cheerful. <laughs> uh, Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.